This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Being enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled, that from any after the first day of January, 1,808, it shall not be lawful to import or bring to the United States or the territories thereof from any foreign kingdom, place, or country, any Negro, mulatto, or person of color with the intent to hold, sell, or dispose of such Negro or person of color as a slave or to be held to service or labor. United States Congress, 1807. On January 1st, 1808, the United States officially banned the importation of enslaved individuals. The story of why it did so and the impact of this move is what we will begin this episode with. First, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Alicia from the Civics and Coffee podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. Now, I will say that you can hear the same audio on a recent episode that Alicia did and that I will have noted on the work cited page for this episode. Alicia, on her podcast, has been journeying through the early days of the Republic and examining various topics in the time it takes you to drink a cup of coffee or tea or whatever your beverage of choice may be. In a compact amount of time, she brings a wealth of information to the listener's attention and leaves one with much to ponder much as one could imagine happening when meeting a learned friend at a coffee house. I've listened to many an episode as I've had my first cup of coffee in the morning, and I can't recommend it enough. After you get done with this episode, head on over to Civics and Coffee, that's spelled out in all one word, dot com, or search for Civics and Coffee wherever fine podcasts can be found. One of the compromises that had been made in crafting the Constitution was that Congress was forbidden from acting to prohibit the importation of enslaved individuals for at least 20 years after the Constitution's ratification, which meant that 1808 was the earliest point legally in which action could be taken. We've spoken before of how at least some white Americans felt that slavery would eventually die out as a practice on its own. And for a time, there were movements that could be pointed to supporting that hypothesis. Ultimately, though, that was not the case. For a time, the practice of importing enslaved individuals to the United States had ended. But, as discussed in Episode 3.20, South Carolina reopened the foreign slave trade to its state. What would ultimately fuel not just the continuation, but the expansion of the slaveocracy at this point was profit, plain and simple. While there were some who freed their enslaved individuals for whatever reason, be it that the practice was no longer profitable for them or for reasons of morality and ethics, many more made another choice. 
For many slave owners who found it unprofitable to maintain a larger population of enslaved individuals versus the dividends earned from their labor, or if the slave owner found themselves underwater in debt, they would simply sell enslaved individuals. And there was a demand for enslaved individuals in the new lands that had been opened up in the Trans-Appalachian South. For leaders in South Carolina, knowing that there was a potential end to the possibility of importing enslaved individuals legally, they aimed to profit as much as they could for as long as they could as a supplier of enslaved labor for settlers in these new lands. When the foreign slave trade was officially ended, a story in the Charleston Courier reported that 39,310 enslaved individuals had been brought through South Carolina in the years since they temporarily reopened the trade. With the date in mind, Jefferson, in his sixth annual message on December 2nd, 1806, included a paragraph about two-thirds of the way through the message that read as follows, quote, I congratulate you, fellow citizens, on the approach of the period at which you may interpose your authority constitutionally to withdraw the citizens of the United States from all further participation in those violations of human rights which have been so long continued on the unoffending inhabitants of Africa, and which the morality, the reputation, and the best of our country have long been eager to prescribe. Although no law you may pass can take prohibitory effect until the first day of the year 1808, yet the intervening period is not too long to prevent by timely notice expeditions which cannot be completed before that day. Though Jefferson presented it as a fait accompli that the bill to ban the importation of enslaved individuals would go through, there were still many details to discuss before such a bill could go through Congress. Questions ranged in the halls of Congress about what was a suitable punishment for those who flouted the ban, how it should be enforced, and what should be done with people illegally brought to the United States from the continent of Africa. The latter especially was a source of contention as nearly a dozen proposals were put forward, but none was deemed sufficient. Ethically speaking, the individuals should be returned home, but the logistics of that were seen as too complicated. A proposal was made that it should be at the president's discretion to send them, quote, to some place where slavery was illegal, and there they would be indentured for a term of years. Objections were raised by Southern congressmen at this as, naturally, if someone was to profit from their labor, they wanted to be the ones to do so. Ultimately, the issue was resolved with an agreement that, quote, illegally imported Africans were to be subject to such regulations as the several legislatures should make. No problem with that, right? Right? Yeah. You can imagine how that ends up for the illegally enslaved individuals. Given his position in recent episodes, you may be surprised to learn, dear listener, that Representative John Randolph of Roanoke, Democratic-Republican for Virginia, actually agreed with Jefferson on the passage of the banning of the importation of enslaved individuals. Indeed, he only spoke up in the debate when a proposal was put forward to ban, quote, the transportation of currently owned slaves within the United States. Being from Virginia, Randolph was against this prohibition. His remarks did, however, ring rather prescient, as Randolph noted that, quote, 
If ever the time of disunion between the states should arrive, the line of severance will be between the slaveholding and the non-slaveholding states. Ultimately, the problem with this ban on the foreign trade of enslaved individuals was that it would inherently boost the domestic trade, unless, of course, slavery was ended outright. Even a ban on the interstate trade would only have limited impact if, of course, the goal was to work towards the end of slavery. That may have been the goal of a few in the passage of this bill, but it was not the goal of a number of folks who approved it. As with any form of trade protection, banning the importation of cheaper enslaved individuals from abroad would drive up the cost of enslaved individuals in the U.S., which, naturally, their enslavers preferred, especially those who wanted to get as much hard currency as they could from the domestic slave trade in order to pay off their debts. The impact of this bill would also depend on its enforceability, and while on the surface, the foreign slave trade to the U.S. was ended, there are always those who worked to circumvent the law, and there are always those charged with enforcing the law who could be convinced, for one reason or another, to look the other way. As we shall see as we go along with our narrative, the ban on the importation of enslaved individuals, which went into effect on January 1st, 1808, was not a triumph for the cause of freedom. Rather, it only served to exacerbate existing problems and create new issues as time went on. The Jefferson administration, though, had little time to consider the possible ramifications of this bill when it went into effect, as they had other matters, both foreign and domestic, to consider. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Since we last left the French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte in Berlin in late 1806, let's start there and get caught up with his campaigns. For Napoleon's zeal for conquest was not satisfied with the taking of the Prussian capital. In early November, he sent a reconnaissance unit into what had once been Poland, and by the end of the month, his forces had moved in and taken Warsaw. The emperor arrived at that city on December 18th, and began making plans on how to convince the Ottoman Empire and Persia to declare war on Russia in order to force them to fight on two fronts once Napoleon was ready to march his forces further east. He was successful in negotiations with the Ottomans, and the Ottoman Empire declared war first on Russia that December, then on Great Britain in January. The Russians, however, were making plans of their own to force the French out of Poland. Unfortunately for the remainder of the Fourth Coalition, Napoleon soon learned that something was up, and in late January, drew up a counterplan. On the afternoon of February 7th, forces of the Grande Armée reached the Russian army at Elo, and while attendants were in the process of unloading equipment, they were attacked by the Russians, and as described by Napoleon biographer Alan Schoen, quote, Heavy fighting quickly ensued in the streets of Elo, lasting until 10 that night, after which several thousand casualties on both sides were carried away. It was not an auspicious beginning. 
The next day would be little better as, quote, heavy snowstorms hindered both vision and movement. And at one point, it looked like the Russian forces were on the ropes. Indeed, Napoleon himself was nearly captured by the Russian infantry. In the end, the Russian commander had enough and ordered a retreat unknowingly at the same time as Napoleon had ordered his forces to do the same. Again from Schoen, in two days, Elo had become, quote, one of the bloodiest battlefields in hundreds of years of European history, and the Russians and French had fought a perfectly balanced draw. Though Napoleon would claim Elo as a victory, in fact, it delayed him from being able to advance in his eastern campaign and allowed the Russians and the remainder of the Prussian army to form a new defense pact, which was signed in secret on April 26, 1807. By mid-June, coalition forces and the Grande Armée were facing off again, this time at Friedland. The Battle of Friedland went much better for the French emperor and his troops, with only 8,000 casualties to nearly 20,000 Russian casualties. This final defeat was too much for the Russian generals, and they pressed on Russian Tsar Alexander I to negotiate with Napoleon to end the quote-unquote bloodbath. Thus, an armistice was signed between France and Russia on June 22nd, and on June 25th, the French emperor and the Russian Tsar met on the banks of the Neman River. Alexander requested and Napoleon agreed to sign an armistice agreement with Prussia as well. The next day, Prussian King Friedrich Wilhelm III was invited to join in the negotiations at Tilsit, though Napoleon did all that he could to offend the Prussian king in the process. The draft treaties between France and Russia were signed on July 7th, and a couple of days later, a treaty was signed between France and Prussia. Again from Scholm, quote, Within the space of these couple of weeks together, Napoleon had won over the formerly hostile but highly impressionable and mercurial Alexander I. The treaties negotiated were not favorable to Russia. A new duchy of Warsaw was created, which would be another puppet state under French control. The Russian government agreed to mediate a peace treaty between Britain and France, but in secret articles, agreed to, quote, make common cause with France and close its ports to British trade if the British refused to make peace. Both Russia and Prussia lost territory in their settlements with France, with Prussia the greatest loser, with nearly a third of its territory and a half of its population now under the control of either France or the Confederation of the Rhine. As described by Scholm, quote, the treaty signed at Tilsit literally turned Europe topsy-turvy. The whole of Western Europe was either occupied or controlled by French armies under the orders of one man, Napoleon Bonaparte. Though the negotiations had nominally brought peace, the Prussians had been so humiliated in the process that they would henceforth be looking for any way to take the French emperor down. Meanwhile, with its coalition partners out of the battle, Britain was once again left standing alone in its battle against France, and now faced the prospect of being cut off from European markets nearly completely. There was still, however, one partner that Britain could count on in Europe, namely Portugal. Portugal had been an ally of Britain's for a long time, and in the midst of the decades-long conflict between its ally and France, Portugal, quote, had simply ignored Bonaparte's decrees and threats 
giving the British Navy and Merchant Marine full access to its ports and facilities. However, with things settled to Napoleon's satisfaction in the East, his attention drew back to the West. Before he could focus in on Portugal, there were some other matters that he had to clear up first. The Emperor returned to Paris for the first time in 10 months on July 27, 1807, and quickly turned his focus to dealing with a few disruptive elements in the capital. Napoleon's foreign minister, our old friend Talleyrand, had been drifting out of the Emperor's favor for some time. Despite Napoleon having rewarded this conspirator who had helped bring him to power with millions in both funds and properties, Talleyrand had been vocal in his opposition to Napoleon's plans for expansion across the continent. Further, quote, Talleyrand had mocked Bonaparte's effort to create a whole new aristocracy out of a pack of working-class oafs who, as a rule, had only one real talent in common the ability to kill large numbers of opposing troops on the field of battle. Despite being foreign minister, Talleyrand had been, for the most part, shut out of negotiations at Tilsit, and when he arrived back in Paris, rather than waiting for the axe to fall, he proactively submitted his resignation to the emperor. Napoleon replaced Talleyrand with his former interior minister, Nompère de Champagny, who Chaume described as, quote, hardly of the stature of Talleyrand, but at least someone who would not hamper him, i.e. Napoleon, in his various plans for massive new territorial expansion. Indeed, the emperor had plans for the rest of Europe and even North Africa, and he would not be dissuaded from pushing the boundaries of his empire further. In late 1807, Napoleon traveled to Milan to work on consolidating his power in the Italian peninsula. It would be from here on December 17th where he issued a new decree expanding the continental system in response to new British orders in council issued in late November. The British would now force all neutral ships bound for Europe, quote, into English ports where they would pay a fee for English permission to proceed to a continental port. Napoleon, in turn, in the Milan decree, quote, declared any ship of any nation submitting to search by a British vessel or paying any British fees, fines, or taxes to be a French prize. Though, as noted by Malone, the French Navy did not actually have the power to enforce this decree on the high seas, Napoleon could use this decree to, quote, easily seize any hapless vessel that came into any of the harbors he controlled. It would take some time for news of the Milan Decree to make its way to Washington, D.C., as would news of what was happening on the Iberian Peninsula. Napoleon, on the eve of the Treaties of Tilsit, had put forward another ultimatum to Portugal in the summer of 1807 to end its support of Britain, which the Portuguese government promptly rejected. No matter. Napoleon simply turned to the other power on the Iberian Peninsula, Spain, and began negotiations with the leading figure in its government, the Prince of Peace, Manuel de Godoy. It's been a bit since we talked about Godoy, episode 3.29 to be exact, but little had changed for Godoy since that time. He continued to be the power behind the scenes in Spain, and thus, it is not surprising that the French would negotiate directly with him. Godoy, as was often the case in European diplomacy, used the opportunity to secure some personal benefit for himself. Two of the articles of the treaty gave Godoy, quote, full possession and sovereignty of, quote, 
the province of Alentejo and the Algarve, which was, in fact, one-third of Portugal. Another third would be given to Spain, while the final third would fall under French possession. Unlike many of Napoleon's treaties with other European powers, what would come to be the Treaty of Fontainebleau did not involve a loss of territory for Spain. However, it provided for a French force of 25,000 soldiers and 3,000 cavalry to travel through Spanish territory to strike at Lisbon, while a reserve force of 40,000 was allowed to remain at Bayonne, just north of the Franco-Spanish border. And command of Spanish armies to support Napoleon's troops was given to one of Napoleon's generals. Little did Godoy know, when the treaty was signed on October 27, 1807, that French troops had already crossed into Spanish territory 10 days prior. Soon, thousands of Napoleon's troops would be present in the northern portion of Spain. Godoy, however, had his own problems to deal with, namely, a revolt being led by Spanish Prince Fernando, the heir to the throne. Fernando had long bore a grudge against Godoy and his corruption and self-aggrandizement at his family's expense. While it's beyond the scope of this podcast to go into all of the details of Spanish politics of the time, we do need to understand that, at the time that Napoleon was introducing a sizable military force in and near Spain, the Spanish royal family was in a state of turmoil as the discovery of Fernando's plans to revolt led to his detention and interrogation. The situation worked to Godoy's disadvantage, though, as Fernando was popular among the people of Spain, and, as described by historian Douglas Hilt, Godoy soon recognized the situation as follows, quote, The Prince of Asturias, i.e. Fernando, reduced to a whining, pathetic figure, was rapidly gaining strength throughout the land, whereas he, Godoy, heaped with titles and honors, unexampled in Spain's long history, could but count on the king and queen for support. Meanwhile, on November 30th, 1807, French forces arrived at Lisbon, Portugal, to discover that the Portuguese royal family had fled aboard British vessels, which would take them to exile in the Portuguese colony of Brazil in South America. With Portugal in French control, now was the time for the Treaty of Fontainebleau to be revealed and for Godoy to be given his new kingdom. Right? Right? Emperor Napoleon? As we shall learn more about next episode, Napoleon had other plans for the Iberian Peninsula, which would, in turn, impact the situation in the Spanish and Portuguese colonies in the Americas. For now, though, I think this sufficiently demonstrates what a mess the situation in Europe was at the beginning of 1808 and how this would prove to be challenging geopolitical waters for the still-fledgling United States to navigate. Jefferson and his Secretary of State, James Madison, would have an opportunity to put their diplomatic skills to the test upon the arrival of a new envoy from Great Britain, George Rose. As noted last episode, British Foreign Secretary George Canning, reaching an impasse in his negotiations with James Monroe and William Pinckney in London, decided to send a special envoy to Washington, D.C. to meet with the American government in the aftermath of the Chesapeake Leopard Affair. As noted by historians Spencer Tucker and Frank Reuter, quote, Canning's motives are unclear. He may have honestly desired conciliation with the U.S. However, his choice of the young and relatively inexperienced George Rose as his special emissary may indicate he only intended to pay lip service 
toward reaching a solution. It should be noted, though, that Rose was Canning's second choice. His first choice, Nicholas Van Sittert, quickly realized that the special envoy would be less of a diplomat than, quote, a mouthpiece, simply reiterating Britain's refusal to renounce impressment and thus decline the appointment. Despite the fact that Monroe and Pinckney had been hampered in their negotiations by strict instructions that they could not deviate from, Canning's instructions to Rose were likewise, quote, uncompromising and inflexible. Rose's ship arrived at Hampton Roads, Virginia in late December 1807, and the diplomat was forced to wait for permission to travel to the nation's capital. As he waited, he began to get information from British officers in the area, as well as local newspapers, and sent reports back to London that, quote, were full of exaggeration and misinformation and misrepresented the public attitude within the United States. These reports would do little to quell, quote, the growing animosity and contempt of the British toward the United States. President Jefferson was under no illusions when it came to the probability of a peaceful settlement being reached with Rose. As he noted in a letter in January 1808, quote, Mr. Rose stays on board his ship at Hampton. We know not why. If he is seeking time, we may indulge him. Time prepares us for defense. Time may produce peace in Europe. That removes the ground of differences with England Chill another war. Before Rose could reach the capital, word came of the new British orders in council, which were clearly aimed at American shipping interests. And Jefferson wrote to his son-in-law, former Representative Thomas Mann Randolph, in late January, that news of the British orders, quote, has entirely hushed all opposition to the embargo. Opposition, though, was in the air in other avenues. George Rose was not the only arrival from Europe in December 1807. James Monroe and his family had arrived in Norfolk on December 13th, and after getting his family settled, the former U.S. minister traveled to Washington, D.C. to report to the President and the Secretary of State. As noted by Monroe biographer Harry Ammon, Monroe, quote, met with a disappointing reception upon his arrival. It was not that Jefferson and Madison neglected the usual tokens of friendship, but they carefully avoided discussing political matters and made no attempt to seek his advice on policy towards England. Thus, the gulf between Monroe and his two fellow Virginians grew just as the election year of 1808 arrived. As discussed most recently last episode, Representative John Randolph of Roanoke and others in the Democratic-Republican ranks who are dubbed the Old Republicans saw Monroe as a viable alternative to Jefferson's intended successor, James Madison. As early as 1805, though he didn't make a public declaration of such, Jefferson had let it be known in his private correspondence with other Virginians that he did not intend to stand for election to a third term. Likewise, though the president didn't publicly express a preference on who he felt should succeed him, given their long-standing close professional partnership, there was little doubt to Jefferson's thoughts on the matter. Indeed, long before Jefferson had risen to the presidency, in April 1795, he wrote Madison that, quote, I express my hope of the only change of position I ever wish to see you make, and I expressed it with entire sincerity, because there is not another person in the U.S. 
who being placed at the helm of our affairs, my mind would be so completely at rest for the fortune of our political bark. During Jefferson's second term, Democratic Republicans in Congress began to discuss Madison as Jefferson's obvious successor. But besides John Randolph and the old Republicans, there were others who sought to thwart the Secretary of State's candidacy. Despite the downfall of Aaron Burr, the divisions in the Democratic-Republican ranks in New York State remained in place. Morgan Lewis, whose election we discussed in Episode 3.22, had been defeated in his re-election bid in 1807, but still led a faction of Democratic-Republicans even after leaving office. Meanwhile, the faction that Vice President George Clinton had led when he had been governor was now being mostly led by his nephew, New York City Mayor DeWitt Clinton. Though remaining separate from the Federalists, some supporters of Burr remained unreconciled to the other two factions of the party, and especially the Lewis faction in particular, as the Lewisites, as they are sometimes referred, were supporters of Jefferson administration and of Madison's candidacy in 1808. Though the Clintonian faction did attempt some outreach to the old Republicans in Virginia, they also had their own ideas about who should succeed Jefferson. As the faction's leader, DeWitt was discussed as a possibility, but there was already a Clinton on the national stage. As was the case for vice presidents at the time, Vice President George Clinton did not play a leading role in government affairs, but being in Washington and presiding over the Senate allowed him an opportunity to cultivate Democratic-Republican support in the nation's capital. However, he hadn't gotten off to a good start when he first made his way to Washington, D.C. in December 1805. Senator William Plumer, Federalist from New Hampshire, described Clinton's debut as follows, quote, He is an old, feeble man. He appears altogether unacquainted with our rules. His voice is very weak and feeble. I cannot hear the one half of what he says. He has a clumsy, awkward way of putting a question, preserves little or no order. What a vast difference between him and Aaron Burr. Senator John Quincy Adams of Massachusetts likewise wrote around the same time that, quote, Mr. Clinton is totally ignorant of all the most common forms of proceeding in Senate, and yet, by the rules, he is to decide every question of order without debate and without appeal. His judgment is neither quick nor strong, so there is no more dependence upon the correctness of his determinations from his understanding than from his experience." as the only duty of a vice president under our Constitution is to preside in Senate, it ought to be considered what his qualifications for that office are at his election. In this respect, a worse choice than Mr. Clinton could scarcely have been made. As time went on, though, it seems that Clinton was able to make some headway in gaining a more favorable impression as Senator Plumer later wrote of the vice president that, quote, The more I see and know of this man, the more highly he rises in my estimation. There is something venerable in his appearance. There is that pleasing cheerfulness, that easy access, that flow of good humor and docile manners that are so seldom found in men of his age and which renders him, to me, a very interesting companion. He appears honest. Though he had been Jefferson's running mate in 1804, 
1808 neared, Vice President Clinton found himself increasingly concerned about the administration's policies, and Jefferson likewise had distanced himself from his one-time running mate. In particular, Clinton had long been a proponent for a strong military defense, and as we have seen, Jefferson was averse to the idea of strengthening the military any more than absolutely necessary. Though none of the candidates at the time declared themselves as such, the 68-year-old Clinton was being discussed as a possible alternative to Madison, as was the 49-year-old Monroe, who had given his tactic approval to the old Republicans to advance his candidacy. The problem with both of these candidates, though, is that it was very much an uphill battle to overcome the support for Madison in Washington. Monroe's supporters put forward the idea of Clinton and Monroe running on the same ticket in order to unify the opposition. As Clinton was the elder statesman, Monroe's backers were willing to defer to him the top seat on the ticket, and it seemed at one point like the idea was gaining some traction. Then, however, there came the caucus held on January 19, 1808. Senator Stephen Rowe Bradley, Democratic-Republican from Vermont, summoned Democratic-Republican senators and representatives, as well as a few nominally Federalist colleagues, including Senator John Quincy Adams, together to discuss the upcoming presidential election. Around 50 Democratic-Republicans boycotted the meeting. So when the caucus convened in mid-January, there were only 89 members of Congress present, and the states of Connecticut and Delaware were not represented at all, as their members of Congress were all Federalist. By the time of the caucus, Senators Wilson Carey Nicholas and William Branch Shiles, both of Virginia, and both strong proponents of Madison's candidacy, had come up with a way to circumvent a challenge by Clinton. Namely, despite him being on the outs for the administration, they decided that it was best to keep your enemies close. And thus, Clinton was put forward as the vice presidential candidate for the Democratic-Republican ticket. In the end, Madison won overwhelmingly in the Congressional Caucus with 83 votes to Clinton and Monroe's three votes each. For vice president, though not as overwhelming, Clinton came out on top with 79 votes, while five votes were made for New Hampshire Governor John Langdon, three for Secretary of War Henry Dearborn, and one for Senator Adams. While it certainly didn't help their cause, the results of the Congressional Caucus was not necessarily the end of the road for the Clinton and Monroe campaign efforts. Clinton's supporters refused to accept the caucus's decision, and Clinton himself did not, quote, formally accept the vice presidential nomination. Clinton's backers attempted to get an endorsement of the Clinton-Monroe ticket from the New York State Legislature to boost their cause, but to no avail. Meanwhile, around the time of the Congressional Caucus, both Madison and Monroe supporters were hard at work in Virginia, attempting to put together a legislative caucus in that state. In the end, the pro-Madison faction assembled at Bell's Tavern in Richmond for their caucus, while Monroe backers staged their own caucus at the state capitol. The caucus at Bell's Tavern had the larger attendance, with 123 unanimously endorsing Madison, while at the capitol, 67 state representatives gathered with 57 of those voting for Monroe, while the remainder chose Madison as their candidate. Though neither Clinton nor Monroe would concede, and boosters would continue to talk up their chances, it was growing increasingly clear that there would be no groundswell of support for either man. 
Even the possibility of playing the spoiler and keeping electoral votes from Madison in the two most populous states in the Union seemed increasingly unlikely as the year went on. All that the two men and their supporters had after January was a growing resentment at what they saw as a conspiracy to propel James Madison into the president's house. Secretary of State Madison, however, was more busy as January gave way to February, dealing with the negotiations with British envoy George Rose than he was in thinking about his presidential prospects. President Jefferson, meanwhile, was dealing with some personal issues around the president's house. Now more than ever, with the embargo in place, Jefferson was interested in developing domestic agricultural industries, and beyond providing his encouragement to various endeavors, he also conducted his own trials with new varieties of crops and livestock. It was this interest in farming innovations that resulted in the president having a Shetland ram at the president's house in February 1808. Unfortunately, for one young boy named Alexander Kerr Jr., the presence of this ram would be to his detriment. While crossing the lawn of the president's house on February 6th, as people were wont to do in those days, the ram attacked the young care and caused severe injuries. The president wrote to the boy's father, Alexander Care Sr., the next day to, quote, offer my devout prayers for his safety and to yourselves my sincere sympathies and respect. Alexander Care Jr. would ultimately die from his injuries. And on April 4th, Alexander Care Sr. wrote to the president asking for an appointment as collector of the Port of Baltimore due to, quote, the great desire I have to remove myself and family from the place where every day, indeed, I may say every hour, presents something to keep our feelings alive to the late distressing affair that has taken place in it. From what I found, it doesn't appear that Jefferson appointed Care to the post but he did discreetly send the CARES $25 in July. In the meantime, Madison began his negotiations with George Rose, but it quickly became apparent that there was going to be little obtained through this latest round of diplomacy. On February 7th, Rose announced that his instructions kept him from discussing reparations for the Chesapeake Leopard affair, quote, until there was some disavowal on the part of the U.S. as to the conduct of their agents in encouraging, harboring, and retaining deserters, natural-born citizens of His Britannic Majesty. Rather than being discouraged by this turn of events, Madison instead used this opportunity to open up a discussion about impressment in general. The Secretary of State asked whether the United Kingdom, quote, would renounce its right to press American citizens from public and private vessels alike if the United States promised to protect bona fide British citizens from enticement into the American service. As noted by historian Burden Spivak, though, quote, Unfortunately, English and American definitions of citizenship differed, and these differences were the heart of the impressment problem. Rose, however, would not give anything more than an inclusion in a final agreement, quote, a right for the U.S. to claim from Great Britain a like disavowal of impressment. This was not a disavowal, just the right to claim a disavowal. Between this and Rose's continued insistence that the Jefferson administration repeal the president's proclamation of July 2nd before any talk could be had of reparations, it was clear that the official negotiations could go no further. The administration, however, 
had one more card to play. Secretary of the Navy Robert Smith began an informal outreach effort to Rose that appears to have been sanctioned by Jefferson himself. As noted by Smith biographer Tom Armstrong, quote, quite possibly, Jefferson saw an opportunity to use Smith as a medium in hopes that Rose could be made more accommodating. Smith had the advantage of having a reputation of being more favorable to Britain, and he had a more sociable approach than Madison. Unfortunately, even this effort failed to achieve results, and by late March, Madison returned Rose's passport so that he could return home. As noted by Armstrong, quote, while the Jefferson administration had not had high hopes for a repudiation of British policies and reparations for past injustices, it did expect some token gesture of a willingness to improve relations between the two countries. This they did not get from George Rose, not in the least. While Madison engaged in the fruitless negotiations with Rose, Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin and Naval Secretary Smith struggled to determine how to enforce the embargo. Funny enough, Gallatin and Smith were the largest skeptics of the embargo in the cabinet, but the responsibility of enforcement fell to their departments. For Gallatin, the embargo threatened all the work that he had done at the Treasury to that point. His plan for paying off the national debt depended on duties from trade, and to the point that the Embargo Act was signed by Jefferson, Gallatin had seen tremendous success in that. Indeed, 1807 saw the value of U.S. exports rise to a new high of $108 million, while imports that year were valued at $138.5 million. This meant a good source of revenue for the government, and Gallatin's austerity measures had the expenditures of the government not related to repaying the debt down to $4.9 million in 1807. The embargo, however, would reverse that. Less revenue would be coming into the government, while the cost of enforcement would increase the amount the administration had to spend in 1808. The logistics of the actual enforcement had to be considered as soon as the embargo was in place. Lawmakers quickly realized that, in the rush to get the bill through, they had left some loopholes. For example, while the original act had put, quote, penalties on registered or sea letter vessels, which might also be engaged in coastwise trade, and that they had to put down a bond before leaving port, which, as the bond was, quote, double the value of the ship and cargo, worked to guarantee that they would only land in another U.S. port or forfeit the bond. No such bond was required for vessels designated as only for coastal trade. It didn't take long for someone to realize that, with British Canada to the north and Spanish colonies to the south, those ships could also easily end up in a foreign port. A couple of months after passing a supplementary bill to require bonds from all coastal trading vessels, someone looked at a map and realized that you could get to Canada by land as well as by sea. Thus, another act was passed to forbid the export of goods by land in addition to the Embargo Act's ban of export by sea. As these loopholes closed and enforcement by collectors at the ports increased, tempers likewise rose. Representative Barrett Gardenia, Federalist from New York, attacked these new supplementary bills as being against the spirit of Jefferson's initial call for the Embargo Act. The president had claimed that it was about avoiding having ships at sea where there may be another Chesapeake Leopard incident that would lead the nation to war. 
What did trading by land have anything to do with that, Gardenier question on February 20th? When Gardenier referred to the, quote, unseen hand of the imperial conqueror guiding these new developments, Democratic Republicans pounced, and Representative George W. Campbell, Democratic Republican from Tennessee, in particular, denounced Gardenier harshly, to which the representative from New York challenged his colleague to a duel. Representative John Wales Epps, Democratic Republican from Virginia, and the president's son-in-law by his late daughter Maria, served as Campbell's second, and Gardenier ended up being wounded in the confrontation. Jefferson, meanwhile, was deluged with requests to exercise his authority under the Embargo Act to make exemptions from the embargo. Now, some of these related to folks, quote, bringing home valuable property, specie, produce, merchandise from overseas. But as you can imagine, there were others who wanted to use this as an opportunity to import goods for a profit. In order to take some work off of Jefferson's desk, he worked with Secretary of the Treasury Gallatin to draft circulars which would help to guide port collectors to make decisions on exemptions in minor cases, but under strict guidelines. For the most part, the collectors abided by the guidance from Washington. But in February 1808, Gallatin learned that the collector at the Port of New Orleans had allowed 42 vessels to depart and just claimed that he hadn't received news of the Embargo Act. New England was also a source of tension and evasions of the law, and the administration had to dismiss the collector at the port of Bedford, Massachusetts. Still, by and large in early 1808, Democratic-Republican elected officials in the states provided Jefferson with political cover with various state assemblies passing resolutions of support for the embargo, including in Massachusetts. When Jefferson sent Congress accounts of the negotiations with the British, as well as a copy of Napoleon's Milan Decree in March 1808, it provided further proof to justify the implementation of the embargo. The grace given to President Jefferson and the administration, however, would soon fade, as the embargo threatened the livelihoods of folks throughout the country, and as the last year of Jefferson's presidency saw a significant increase in the size of the army not for use against foreign powers, but rather to enforce the embargo domestically. We will discuss this as well as the transition from the Jefferson to the Madison presidency in our next episode, which I'm calling Sunset and Sunrise. As hard as it is to believe, we are, dear friends, at the last days of the Jefferson presidency. Thus, if you have any questions about Jefferson his life and career, or anything we've discussed in the course of the series, I am starting to collect those for a Q&A episode to round out this part of the journey. Feel free to reach out via email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. You can also send in your questions through social media. I'm available on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, or on Instagram at presidenciespodcast, again, all one word. Thanks so much to Alicia for providing the intro quote for this episode, and be sure to check out Civics and Coffee once you're done with this episode. Special thanks also to Christian for providing his audio editing services for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to Christian about getting his assistance with your podcast, his website is yourpodcastpal, that's all one word, dot com. I'll have a link to it on the source notes page for this episode at my website, 
presidencies.blueberry. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Special thanks also to the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty for the intro and outro music for this episode. I wanted to take a moment to thank everyone who has left a rating and review for the podcast. The latest is a five-star review from Stacy RCSM, at Apple Podcasts titled, If You've Always Wanted to Know More, and reads as follows, quote, The American presidency is unlike any other political office in history. We've seen their portraits and briefly covered them in school, but there's a lot more to be discovered. Jerry does a phenomenal job of showing the president for who they were, not just what they did. And most importantly, he deftly places their administrations in a context of what else was going on in the world and the nation. An engaging and highly informative show. Highly recommended. Thank you so much for your kind words, Stacy. We also had a five-star review from A. Keith Anderson titled Detailed and Engrossing, which reads as follows. Jerry does an amazing job of bringing history to life. Always a pleasure to listen to the newest, albeit oldest, in the world of American government and history. Thank you so very much, Keith, and thanks to all of you who have provided your support over the years and have stuck with me on this journey. I'm so excited to see what lies ahead for us on the path through presidential history, and I'm glad to be on this exploration with each of you. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.